The following program is intended for mature audiences. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. It's Big Boom Radio Friday, people, so it's time once again for the Big Boom Radio podcast, Riffs and Rants, with Johnny Teflon and Michael Sean Lee. Both barrels, both sides, and a lot of good music, too. All I know is this violates every canon of respectable broadcasting. Indeed it does, my friend, indeed it does. And we'll be right back, folks, after the first gem of the day. The very first thing we recorded... It's an old uh, rhythm and blues type song called That's All Right, Little Mama. We had three instruments, myself on guitar and Scotty and a bass player. One like this. Well, that's all right, little mama. That's all right with you. That's all right, little mama. Just the way you do. That's all right. That's all right.
Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. The best way we could come up with to start a very special oh, episode man. of Riffs and Rants. I have been so looking forward to doing this episode. Because we had a little, little bit of a baby hiatus. <laughs> and to yeah, that how end. How are you feeling, man? Welcome back. Yeah. Well, welcome back. But Take don't a little get, break. Yeah. Don't get know? the seat too warm because we're still kind of on break. Oh, yeah. And so for the listeners out there, the sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, sorry we're broken away from our utter predictability of having a show every week. Indeed. But look, it's the summer. Yeah. You know, so give us some time. <laughs> and we're back. But we're back. Yeah, we're back. And like I said, I don't think there has been an episode I've been looking forward to doing more than this. When you brought this up a week or two ago, um, you know, given the obvious uh, situation where uh, the new film Elvis is, mm-hmm. you know, putting putting the late great king of rock and roll back in the news. Yep. Um, you know, I just just gave me shivers thinking about what we could do with this episode. So and I'm, we knew I'm how easy it, it would you know? be, because it goes back to the roots of this show, which was supposed to be two guys, Exhibit A and Exhibit B, indeed, having drinks, Exhibit C and Exhibit D, <laughs> and just talking about shit, whether it's, you know, whatever, yeah. this, that, and the other thing. And this is right up our alley, because yeah. who doesn't love, you know, anybody who loves music, who doesn't love Elvis? Well, that's the thing, is I think, um, as of the millennial generation, mm-hmm. the significance of Elvis is kind of lost because we just don't study history. Yeah. You know, and millennials, Generation Z folks mm-hmm. don't understand, can't wrap their brains around the significance of Elvis. They would prefer to go to their uh, typically bullshit perspective of, you know, uh, what's the term? Cultural appropriation. Yes. Uh, by the way, if you're somebody who uses the term cultural appropriation, you are an asshole. Wow. Okay. wow. You are somebody who looks for things to get pissed off about because it thinks it, you think it makes you righteous. It doesn't. It makes you an asshole. Do you think Billie Eilish knows who Elvis is? I, God, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I would hope so, but I just I don't know. You just don't know. I don't know, you know? But, yeah, people, you know, it seems like prior to Generation X don't understand the impact that this mm-hmm. man had on society in general and globally. Right. You know, and, you know, from 1955 to 1960, just it's hard to put into perspective Mm -hmm. the impact that he had on popular culture going forward. Right. Uh, But you get a little idea of it where you see, you know, the upteen million Elvis impersonators that are out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, outside of the drag community, there is no one that has, like, inspired more imitators. Mm -hmm. Um, He inspired. Pretty much every single musician that came after him, you know, I mean, from Bruce Springsteen to The Clash, mm-hmm. you know, across the board, everybody cut their teeth on Elvis. Right. You know? And, and that there's something about, and of course, never to, uh, you know, discount his backup musicians. Yeah. Um, oh, DJ Fontana, Scotty Moore, legendary, yeah. legendary But dudes. when Elvis took the stage, and, and they knew this, you know, you'd never hear a peep out of the Memphis Mafia, <laughs> but, you know, they knew Elvis spotlight on him. Yeah. And there, we, we would be hard-pressed to come up with, in show business or any place, really, more of an iconic image than Elvis with the flared collar and the acoustic guitar. Oh, yeah. And it, he, had, he had multiple eras. Mm-hmm. You know, he had Elvis in the 50s. Elvis of the Comeback 1969 special. He mm-hmm. had, you know, Elvis Aloha from Hawaii in the early 70s. And then, unfortunately, tragically, you know, the Elvis of the late 1970s. Right, right. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's funny. It's, it's one of those scenarios where I remember exactly 
what I was doing, where I was, who I was with the day he died in mm -hmm. August of 1977. And I want to jump back just for a minute to the whole cultural appropriation idiocy bullshit. For those of you who would use that term, you don't understand uh, artists and what you do. You know, you're coming out of the gate, you just started, you haven't really established yourself, you haven't found your niche. You reflect your influences. Mm -hmm. You know, every, just about every single musician has done this. Right. And that's what Elvis was doing. So take your cultural appropriation and shove it up your ass. Okay? All right. But anyway, I'm sorry. I needed to vent for a minute. I'm good. <laughs> I'm over that. Going forward, yeah, it's, it's hard in this day and age to wrap your, wrap your brain around the impact culturally that Elvis had. Yeah. You know, from uh, the, the uh, Ed Sullivan show appearance, mm -hmm. you know, where they absolutely had to, you know, show him from the waist up because... In that era, and this will give you an idea how repressed people were back then, that somebody swiveling their hips was like a threat to the moral fabric <laughs> of society, you know? Other than the Beatles' long hair in 1964, no one has thrown society off kilter and threatened, you know, whatever it was they threatened, right. you know, like Elvis did in 1955. And it, that's just, just, you know, one of many, many facets where he created a blueprint of what was to come afterwards. Absolutely. All of our rock and rollers were to serve that purpose of entertaining the kids and upsetting yeah. the adults. Mm -hmm. And if you think about him and his different phases he went through as he got older, that also became a, a blueprint in and of itself that everybody from the Beatles to the Stones to, well, every other individual recording art, they all went through this. Their, yeah. their evolution as an artist, yeah. which again touches back on what you were saying about the whole appropriation argument, you know, all art is subjective. And when you produce art, it's because of a collection of experiences. Absolutely. That, or, or, you know, instances that you yourself have lived through and have been influenced by. Yeah. So it does go to say that really, no matter what, everything is always appropriated. Oh, yeah. Well, like and I said, if you're using that term, you're someone who's looking to be offended. Mm -hmm. You know, you're one of these Twitter nitwits that, you know, right. is looking for somebody to get ticked off about because you think it makes you righteous, but it doesn't. Right. And when it comes to Elvis, it just, it broadcasts the fact that you don't understand the progression of artists. Right. You just, you just don't get it. And it, it, it goes against his um, the diversity that Elvis brought to the table. Yeah, I mean the man could do. We, we were listening to Gems folks <laughs> in earnest tonight to decide which you know three we oh, were going to play. Yeah, of, of the mountain, just the, the yeah. ridiculous number of classic, classic songs and the different genres that he just jumped in and out of, whether it be Caribbean music or calypso or scat and skiffle. And it's you know you, you could maybe argue a point that. Uh, you know, Hound Dog or Heartbreak Hotel might have been an early hard rock hit. I yeah. mean, any number of ways you look at it, but then he did so much gospel later well, on. Well, that's the thing is we focused on the rock side of things, mm -hmm. you know, how he influenced all the rockers that came after yeah. him. But he had a whole other genre of spiritual music. And he, he could did. croon with the best of them. Yeah. I mean, show me, uh, other than Sinatra, uh, who, who could hold a candle to Love Me Tender. I mean, oh, seriously. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's the thing about Elvis is it, even as distorted, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. as he got at the tail end of his career, the voice never went away. Right. You know, even at that point in the, the you know, the last tour he did when he was forgetting lyrics and he was, you know, obviously not well on stage. And as it came out later, he was on an insane raft of pharmaceutical drugs. The voice was always there right mm -hmm. up to the very last performance. 
you know, it never went away. And that's just right. a, it's a stunning thing to consider. Because right, he really took is. His, his performing very seriously. He took the crowd's attention and affection very seriously. Oh, yeah. Never took it for granted. Well, if you knew the story behind, like, the 1969 Elvis comeback special, how, how worried he was, how concerned he was, you know, that after, you know, doing movie, movies for a bunch of years and not touring and not playing live and whatnot, how much that meant to him and the things mm -hmm. he went through to make that special have the impact that it had. Right. You know, and it's like, you know, again, you know, Elvis doing the 69 comeback, everybody dialed that in. In everybody. 68, I must or, Was it 68? Okay. We don't want Myra Goldstein calling no, in on that one. God, no. <laughs> and, you know, Elvis Aloha from Hawaii in 73, mm -hmm. that was a global event. Right. Everybody tuned that in. Everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, there, it just it didn't matter what, you know, level of society, what walk of society you were inhabiting at that time. Elvis was coming across from, from Hawaii, man, and we were going to sit down. We were going to watch that show. Right. You know, and like I said, I remember uh, to a T what I was doing the day he died. Mm -hmm. you, know? And it, you know, it's kind of like previous generations when Pearl Harbor happened right. you know, and whatnot. And uh, it actually, it was kind of funny. For me, it was a father and son moment. You know, I remember uh, it was, I was playing Pop Warner football at the time, you know, and they were issuing equipment and taking physicals and whatnot. And I remember walking out to the car, and my old man said, sit down for a minute, i got to tell you something. And I was like, oh, shit, what is this? And what, like, what I do now? <laughs> yeah, literally, quite literally. And he was like, Elvis died. You know, and that was like a shared moment between father and son. Right. You know, he was, you know, just as significant to my father as he was to me at that point in time. And mm -hmm. I can't, there are no other artists that, that carried that kind of weight, not in my life. Right. You know, and it was just... You know, again, I don't know if they can capture it with this new movie. Uh, apparently, Buzz Lerman did a very good job. Mm -hmm. uh, Austin Butler, the guy who plays Elvis in the movie, apparently did a fantastic job. Right. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. I, yeah, in the interest of, of full disclosure, I haven't seen it yet either. Yeah. I've seen a lot of um, uh, clips and making of and little, yeah. the mini docs and whatnot. And I, you know, I'm not overly impressed yet. But I'm a hard sell when it comes yeah. to the biopics because oh, it's sure. like, do you really want them? I mean, or, or how much do they need to look and sound yeah. like them? And yes, a lot of his mannerisms and, and what he got in, in, in a sublime way. Yeah, there's been worse representations that I'll say. Oh, without a doubt. But you know, you had mentioned to me once before the uh, the turn Kurt Russell did as the character. <laughs> yep, yep. And I'm I'm thinking, is that because I think the movie I was thinking of was This Is Elvis. I'm not sure if that was the one that Kurt okay. Russell did. Yeah. But it was a TV movie, and I remember watching that as a kid, and for me, that was the defining story of yeah. you know, Elvis. Elvis Presley, sure. So I just you know, compare everything to that. And um, Well, i got to give credit to Austin Butler for taking on this. Well, that's role. true. That's Can true. you imagine a weight yeah. that comes with this, the expectations. And everyone's going to say, you suck. And yeah, oh, I you know. know, I know. <laughs> it's like, you know, you got balls, kid. You know, if you're yeah. out there, if you just happen to be listening to Riffs and Rants, yep. you know, tip of the hat to you, kid, because <laughs> that, that could not have been an easy decision to make if you have any idea of who Elvis Presley was. Right. Well, know? I'm sure he does now. And then, of course, I'm sure it doesn't hurt that you got uh, Tom Hanks in there as, as Colonel as Tom Colonel Parker. Tom, yeah. yeah. Talk about a supporting cast, just Tom Hanks alone. Yeah, yeah. You know? And a controversial figure, you know, mm -hmm. in, Colonel, in Colonel Tom. And, you know, a lot of different interpretations as far as, you know, who he was. Was he the angel? Was he the devil? Right. You know, a lot of people blame him for the downfall of Elvis mm -hmm. Presley and the caricature 
that a lot of people argue that Elvis became. Right. You know, it's probably not quite that simple. Yeah. You know? I mean, old is always actually, you know, stuff involved. And, you know, I, I had said to you, you know, sometimes we're, we're looking at art without even knowing it. And I think Elvis for us, quite like the, the Kennedy family, um, it's, it's really a Greek tragedy because we Very all got so. to see life you know, unfold for this talented young man yeah. and see all these progressions he went through and the trials and tribulations, you know, when he, he acquiesced and he, he got drafted and he yep. went overseas and yep. did his, his duty. And, you know, even that right there, a lot of the people that were probably sour on him of the older generations at that point yeah. still looked at it and says, well, you know, he's just like my son, he's going over there to, to you know, yeah. do his duty and stuff. And uh, in, in later years, you know, as hopped up on drugs as he was, uh, in his you know later years and his, his karate years, that was another unfortunate precedent he set. Yeah, and he here he is. He wants to be in, in the DEA. Yeah, so he goes and meets with Richard Nixon, <laughs> yes. and there's all different versions of what they actually How bizarre talked was about, that, right? Yeah, really. But again, it's just he's just an interesting dude, and uh, I mean, there'll, there'll never be another. We've we've no. had other celebrities that have been on that same. Icarus-like arc where they just yeah. flew way too close to the sun, and of course the first one that comes to mind is Michael Jackson. Yeah. Same thing, and we saw him from an even younger age. But here you are in the public eye your entire life, and you watch the evolution that they go through as an artist and the different phases, yeah. and the, the different ways that they broke ground and created new things, and just with a consummate entertainer. Oh yeah, just only amazing, to kind of talented. But Fly the too eventual, close to the sun and burn out. Yeah, the eventual isolation, yep. you know, and the walling off of anybody that, like, really honestly had your best interest in mind and was mm -hmm. trying to save you. And, yeah, it's ironic as hell that Michael married Elvis's daughter. Right. That's just that... Uh, I, I just can't even wrap my brain around then that Then again, wasn't she briefly married to Nicolas Cage? She may well have been. I think, yeah, they were... They were you talk about an actor that, like, pays homage to Elvis every chance he gets, yep, you yep. know? But more on that later. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt, no doubt. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it, it, uh, amongst other things, but um, just to define him as just purely rock and roll at, at its absolute finest, mm -hmm. if you're a kid and you adhere to the ethics of rock and roll, your music has to offend your parents, it has to scare your parents, it has to freak your parents the fuck out. And from 1955 to 1960, that is exactly what Elvis did. You know, I had a conversation not too long ago with some members of that generation, and they were actually telling me that, you know, what's going on today and the kids and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wait a minute, you had Elvis Presley, mm -hmm. you know? Your parents were freaked the hell out about him. They were nuts. They were scared as shit. Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't want to hear that from you. You right. know, because right. that was another thing that Elvis defined mm -hmm. was scare the hell out of the parents, scare the hell out of the older generation. If you're a kid and you're you're <laughs> wrapping your heart and soul around rock and roll, that is a prerequisite. Your your music has to offend the shit out of that generation. Mm -hmm. And again, Elvis defined that. You know. I mean, just you can't. It's re really, really hard, you know, to understand the significance and the impact that he had in his time right. and during his his era of greatness. Fair enough. Know? Fair enough. Yeah. Now I do believe we got one of your favorites coming up for our middle gem today. We do indeed, and uh, and an interesting anecdote I will share with you after we play this song. All right. Um, but this is uh, this is probably. And it, you know, as we went through, it's very, very hard to nail down your favorite Elvis tune. Sure, There's sure. just so many of them. 
But I think this song, uh, given the era that it came out of and the album that it was on, is very definitive of Elvis. And, uh, and yeah, happy to be playing it. Uh, thank you, Johnny Teflon, for letting me spin this one and sharing it with the, uh, with the Riffs and Rants crew. This is a song called Money Honey. Money Honey. All right, we're going to spin this for you, folks, and we'll be right back to talk a little bit more about it and some other things and stuff. pleasure indeed indeed um that was vintage vintage elvis it doesn't mm-hmm. get more vintage than that that was of course off the uh, monumental legendary i can't come up with any more descriptives <laughs> debut album from elvis presley released in march of 1956 okay it was literally the first rock and roll album to top the billboard top pop albums chart hmm. this is when the term Rock and roll was brand new, and right. a lot of people didn't understand it. It was the first million-selling album of that genre. Hmm. It broke down so many walls. It established so much. Again, it's hard to wrap your brain around the significance and the impact that that album right. had. And here's my funny anecdote to go with this. All right. And this may very well qualify <laughs> me as the dumbest ever in the world. And yes, folks, Johnny and the break did get on me about the F-bomb, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restrain <laughs> myself. <laughs> Just a little bit, but 
I get excited, man. I get excited. Sometimes I get silly. I just got to <laughs> choke somebody. <laughs> but I actually had a copy mm-hmm. of this album, Once Upon a Time, when I was very young. This is probably going back to the early 1970s. I stumbled across it in my parents' record collection. Mm-hmm. Um, it had the insanely iconic cover that, to give you an idea of the influence of Elvis Presley, The Clash imitated in 1980 mm-hmm. with their monumental London Calling album. Um, but by the time I found it, as you can probably attest, being a child of that era and the vinyl, the problem with the vinyl is Not it, very was, durable. it was warped. <laughs> it was warped. And the, the, it had Tutti Frutti mm-hmm. was on it, Heartbreak Hotel was on it, but those were songs on the warped part of the album that I couldn't oh, play. Oh, man, yeah. The end result was I could only play the last two songs on the first and second sides of the album. Uh-huh. And if I remember correctly, Money Honey was the last song on the second side of the album. Right. And for some reason, that song just really, really hit me. And it was just like, mm-hmm. wow, that is so cool. You know, it's and, funny you bring up a, like a vinyl story because, yeah. you know, as everybody knows, you know, it's, we're still in the midst of that, you know, vinyl is... Is, is, is the best sound out of all the analog sound. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I don't know. I'm, a, I'm on the <laughs> fence and I'm just technical enough and familiar with, with the processes that, yeah. you know, you can, anything that's, that's on vinyl, if you record it with, you know, and, and use up a shit ton of memory, yeah. you can get every single aspect of that in a digital recording. But again, it's time-consuming, and the files get quite large, so you don't yeah. see that quality off of like iTunes and whatnot. Yeah. Now, yeah, versus a cassette, absolutely. Because if you play a cassette on a really, really good sound system, you can hear the hiss and the nastiness oh, yeah. and shit oh, that yeah, drops no out. No doubt. But the other thing with the vinyl is that it's just so damn fragile. Yeah. I mean, never mind scratches. You made a perfect point with, with the warping. I mean, it's, it's very sensitive to temperature. Yep, yep. And just like anything else, I mean, there was no universal quality control. So some albums cut by certain record labels and, and particular factories might have been better quality oh, yeah. than other ones. Oh, there was definitely a differentiation in the quality. And mm-hmm. unless you're a true music phobe or yep. whatever that term is, unless you're Neil fucking Young, mm-hmm. sorry about the <laughs> F-bomb, um, you're probably not going to pick up the difference between right. digital and analog. But if you're you know, a complete nut for this kind mm-hmm. of stuff, the analog stuff does sound just a little bit better. You know, It's just a little bit and warmer again, it's, and whatnot. It, it, it comes down to a lot of, um, I don't say op- opinion, but you know, different people... Their ears, they pick up different things. Yeah. And not all of us are all, let's say, when you have perfect hearing, you're, you're 15, you know. Yeah. Mine's already shot between yep. years of DJing and just cranking my shit up way too friggin' loud. Oh, yeah. I can't catch those, those nuances anymore in the music, unfortunately. Yeah. But I know there's a lot of people that do. And, you know, even looking at the records themselves, I have a lot of my parents' 45s, and especially yeah. my dad's stuff and the old yeah. Sun records. And those 45s will shatter. And most albums won't. There's yeah. there's some uh, some flexibility there, and it's it feels like a different composition. Oh, absolutely, it's more rubbery. Yeah. But like I said, those old forty fives, you wing that at somebody's head. <laughs> you know, it's like the movie Shaun of the Dead. It will embed in their forehead. It'll sh- yeah, it'll shatter. You yeah. can yeah, you can yeah. kill a zombie with that shit. Yeah, but the, the you know the bottom line, and probably this is not something anybody wants to admit, but the bottom line is albums, LPs mm-hmm. are just so much cooler. 
Well, you know, it's so cool of, if you have a record player yes. and you have an album. It's really not got a lot to if do nothing, with the sound. If it's more just than the cool. artwork yeah. that you know albums lend themselves, especially if you got a double. LP, Biggest thing that was up. lost in the transition from albums to CDs is yep. that exactly right there. Yep, and yeah. the liner notes. I mean, they tried doing it with cassettes, but it's six yeah. point type, so yeah, you're really serious. not getting the same yeah. experience. Yeah. Well, once upon a time, the the album cover. You know, it was just as much of a significant artistic statement as the music itself. Absolutely. You know, and, and a lot that, of famous people did a lot of famous album oh, covers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, unfortunately, has been a casualty of lost art. Now yeah. they'll throw any shit on a cover yeah. if, if there's even artwork on it. Seriously. You know? Seriously. It's true. Unfortunate, but true. Yeah. Anyway. And that's us being old man for a moment. Oh, God, did we date ourselves <laughs> on I that missed one. artwork on an album. <laughs> Uh, but I like the durability of CDs. I mean, you can spill coffee on those guys. Oh, you can whack somebody in the yeah. side of the head with a CD, and it's <laughs> still fine. Still plays. Yeah, sounds yeah, the same. Still good. And yeah. I, I do admit for a while, because, yeah, I was always had a love-hate relationship with cassettes like everybody. They yeah. were great until, inevitably, they got warped. Oh, absolutely. But I used to buy... How many um, times did you hear that sound of the tape getting chewed up? Yeah. In your t- it's and like you hear like, no. Yeah, and it's like, ah! And you try and get it out of the machine real quick, and yep. it won't it won't eject. Now, do you, you remember know? when they started coming out with the chrome cassettes? And they had, like, that little NBC tone in the That was, like, a, like, five minutes when they were five doing Five minutes, it. It and it was, and like, went. not... Like, again, it, it depends on the record label. Yep. And I was going through a Robert Palmer phase, and okay. a lot of his all had that... They were on chrome, yeah. and they would have that... And it was like a computer thing. I was like, oh, it's going to start soon. Now. <laughs> and you could sit there and crank those chrome cassettes up, and you yeah. would hear very little hiss. So there was something yeah. to it. But unfortunately, they would warp just the same as a regular cassette. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you know, if, if, if you're sitting at home listening to it, it would last a lot longer than if you left it in the tape deck in a hot car yeah. in August. Because, yeah. yeah, once you heat that sucker up, you go to play it, it's either you get chewed up mm-hmm. or just be warped to hell. All I know is there's nothing like, there was nothing like that feeling you got when <laughs> you had the cassette in the machine and you heard it getting yep. stretched. And you were like, oh no! Pop you know, it out, get the pencil. You bang it on the eject button. Get it out of there! Yep. Get it out of there! No! Get the pencil out and start rewinding yep. it like manually. Oh, I can save man. it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Totally. So we're going ourselves. From, yeah, yeah. So we're going from that. Yes. Into uh, another aspect of this. Well, let's call it the multimedia episode. Yeah. Because we started off talking about um, the most famous rock and roller of all time and his and, latest and biopic, the new biopic. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And we uh, said to ourselves, selves, we we like ourselves a uh, a good biopic done well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we're looking at you, Rocket Man, because mm, now you were not done no, well. No, not on the list. Sorry. <laughs> but we said to ourselves, we challenged ourselves with coming up with our personal top threes that just worked for any number of reasons. Yep. And before we even say what they are, since I already know what they are, mm-hmm. I think the people at home are going to be amused by how radically different our choices were. <laughs> Well, it's, it's definitely a situation, as you and I talked about, you know, my past history working in radio syndication, and unfortunately knowing a little bit too much mm-hmm. about a lot of these stories, and then taking ex- exception to the fact that for the necessity of making movies right. out of these stories, they play fast and loose with the facts. Yeah. You know, the Doors movie that Oliver Stone did is a classic example, and you and I talked about this. If you, look, if you put that movie on, you turn the sound off. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. The visuals are amazing. 
I remember in LA and hanging out in a lot of the areas when Oliver Stone was filming it. A lot of my friends were extras in those. But as soon as you turn the volume up and you listen to you know, the liberties he took with the actual right. story, it's like, I'm going to kill that bastard. If I ever see him, I'm breaking his fucking neck. You know, as a yep. huge Doors fan that I am, you know. And as I've said to many of my former loves, don't ruin it by talking. <laughs> <laughs> kind of encapsulates it yeah, right there. It, yeah, it, it right kind there of sums it up. It does. It does. But yeah, these movies, yeah, kind of escape that for a variety of different reasons. Yep. So, so we're clearly going to share this with our audience because we know that they like movies too. They Who do. Doesn't? They do. And all of these are pretty easy to. I think actually some of yours might be difficult to find. Because it's uh, very, uh, very so. niche. Maybe so. One or two choices. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, I think I think people will know them. All right. You all know, right. I'm going to asterisk one of them. But okay. proceed, Johnny. All right. Well, my uh, my number three is one that was big when I was just a lad. And I saw it like a whole bunch of times. Because HBO has a much better rotation now than they used to back Indeed. in the day. Indeed. And uh, it was a, a vehicle showing uh, Sissy Spacek as uh, Loretta Lynn. Nice. And the movie was Coal Miner's Daughter. Yep. And it's, I think even still to this day, shines a great light on country music of, of the 50s yes. and how they would rise to fame and, and get into the Grand Ole Opry and all that. Absolutely. And I think, um, I think it was Jessica Lange who might have done a turn, or was it Beverly D'Angelo? They played Patsy Cline. Okay. It was one of her you know, big influences who was a, yeah. a, a goddess at the time. Yep. But, you know, Sissy Spacek, did such a good job um, showing that a, a progression of a good many years. She played yeah. her, you know, her whole life. Oh, yeah. Tommy Lee Jones was, was the husband, yep. the yep. sometimes troublesome husband. That was the acting debut of Levon Helm from really? the band. Yes, that was okay. the first first. Oh, because he was her father, he I yes, think he was. was. Right? Yep. Exactly okay. right, yep. And it was a moving, moving uh, movie. I remember watching it myself and not 100% sure if they were culturally accurate, historically mm-hmm. accurate, but a moving, moving right. story just the same, yep. you know? Kind of kind of brought a tear to your eye in, yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was just well done, all yeah. around well done. So that, that's my number three. Nice. You wouldn't think that because I'm not a huge country western fan. But still. But still. Yeah. <laughs> well, like going into my list, I want to, before I go into my top three, I want to give an asterisk um, to uh, what's love got to do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just for the fact that the performances of Lawrence Fishburne and Angela Bassett... Especially as, Angela Bassett. Oh, God. Career-defining. Her yep. and her, her arms. That's oh, all yeah. we ever heard. Yep. That oh, God, she was buff. She was <laughs> yeah. so buff in that film. Um, the, yeah, their portrayal of Ike and Tina Turner was just mm-hmm. stunning, irregardless of the accuracy of the story. Right. And I got to say, Lawrence Fishburne really brought the... Uh, sleaziness mm-hmm. of Ike Turner 2-4. It was an acting tour yeah. de force for both of them. But I'm going to go with my top three. Number three, I'm going to go with Ray, the Jamie Foxx uh, mm-hmm. take on uh, Ray Charles from 2004. Right. Uh, a stunning, stunning performance mm-hmm. on behalf of Jamie Foxx. He played piano. He so mimicked Ray right. that you could forgive any... Uh, Fast and loose with the facts mm-hmm. thing, and the story works. They made it work. Oh, totally, you did. know, totally did. And you you come away with it with a, a heightened appreciation of Ray Charles, mm. you know, which I think at the end is the barometer, right? You know? Right. They really they is. paid homage to him, but yet it wasn't. Uh, I, I, again, tongue in cheek, I compare it to Rocket Man, the Elton John story, <laughs> yeah. which I had said to you when I saw you, you were like, well, how was it? You know? Yeah. And I'm like, well, clearly Elton John was alive <laughs> when they made this yeah. because you could tell he was like. 
okay, yes, yeah, so you could say this, but please don't say that, and, and yeah. let's let's cut this part out and sanitize for your consumption. Yeah, you know? no doubt. No and a doubt. lot of these these great rock and roll. I mean, that's what makes it because it's almost like they go through the rise, and you're like, oh, their talent was undeniable. Nothing could hold them down. Then they kind of plateau, and then there's like the drugs or the infidelity, and sometimes both. You know. Oh yeah, the progression. It's is, that formula. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a works. formula. And it kills me because a lot of the times, you know, particularly with Elton or with The Doors, mm-hmm. you didn't need to make shit up. If you just told the exactly. story, exactly. it would blow people away. So why do yep. you have to do that? I don't, I don't, yeah. I can't wrap my Truth brain is, around that. Truth is, it's stranger than fiction, especially when it comes to a rock and roll lifestyle. Yeah, no doubt about that. So no that doubt. being said, speaking nice. of formulatic, yes. um, uh, more of a recent one with uh, Joaquin Phoenix, Walk the Line. All right, there you go. Um, you know, being a big Johnny Cash fan, Everything in it seemed to jive with what I had known of, yeah. of the man, where I had come to learn, and um, and a f- uh, just phenomenal performance, Im- impress- yeah. impressionable, uh, impressive uh, Reese Witherspoon. Yes, uh, playing doing, little June Carter. Yeah, yeah. You know, she may have stole the uh, film from mm-hmm. Joaquin Phoenix, mm-hmm. as good as Joaquin's Johnny Cash was. Right. But yeah, Reese with just yeah, she nailed it. She nailed and that's it. you know. I had asked uh, my dad, who, who I got my um, interest in Johnny Cash from, and one day I said to him, you know, who was really the biggest icons back then, from somebody that was alive then, listening to the music. Yeah. And I said, w- was it Johnny Cash or, you know, was it Elvis? He's like, yes and no. He says, you know, surprisingly, you got to throw in Bobby Darren. And I said, really? Wow. Bobby Darren, why? Really? It's because he was on the radio as much as Elvis and more so than Johnny Cash. Right. And what separated Johnny Cash from everybody was his longevity and his ability ah. to adapt and, you know, have his TV specials and the variety show and, yep. Yep. you know, mingle with all these different artists and whatnot. Oh, yeah. He says, but for the longest time, especially in the 50s, if you turn on the radio, you're hearing as many Bobby Darren songs as you are Elvis songs. No doubt. You know? No doubt. But again, Bobby Darren didn't live you know, long enough to really see the fruits of his labor or unfortunately. to have that long career. So, yeah, yep, falls by the wayside. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Good point, Joe. Over to Good you. point. All right. Um, my number two choice is a little obscure. Um, pretty much uh, par for the course with the music that I like and what I like bring to the Fair table enough. here. Uh, the 2007 film Control, which was a bio of a band called Joy Division mm-hmm. and uh, most... Pointedly, the singer Ian Curtis. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of funny. They unfortunately had a very short shelf life. They kind of came and went, but in the course of uh, their time, they put out uh, an iconic, just absolutely iconic song called "Love Will Tear Us Apart Again," mm-hmm. which pretty much influenced every alternative artist that came after them. Tragic story. Ian Curtis, the lead vocalist of the band, hung himself, committed suicide. Which, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, makes the band, makes the history that much more significant. Right. Um, as bizarre as that sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was low budge, didn't have a lot of money. Uh, but there was an absolutely off-the-hook performance from an actor named Tony Kebbell, who appeared in a, uh, a film called Rock and Roll, a Guy Ritchie mm-hmm. film. Uh, utterly off-the-hook performance as the band's manager. And, uh, and just... You know, it was kind of a film for the people in the know. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't for mass consumption, right. but it was uh, it was a moving uh, interpretation of the Joy Division uh, history. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, that's my number two. All right, yeah, that's pretty eclectic, but I would expect nothing less from you. 
Truly. I, I have a bar I have to live up to. I do. Yeah. I do. Well, my number one, which is one I, I think we're kind of sort of in agreement with. All right. And I had to, to steal it out from underneath you. Um, to me, the, the quintessential um, rock and roll story, because it was just done so well, was the Buddy Holly story with yep. Gary Busey. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and just the way Busey became Buddy Holly and, and did the singing and everything. And the way it just told a nice linear story up until the fateful plane trip at the end. Yep. Um, just, I mean, it, it built Gary Busey's career. This is pre-insanity Gary <laughs> Busey and multiple <laughs> motorcycle accidents. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just so, so well done. Um, and really, if, if you were to hold it up like a mirror's image to walk the line, it's so incredibly similar. Yeah. But Buddy Holly wasn't a case of living long enough to have those excesses. It was, again, he yeah. burnt out real young. Died at 22. Right, and thus became immortal. Without a doubt, I would have jumped on that if you hadn't. Mm -hmm. I was uh, pissed <laughs> <laughs> that you got to that one before I did. But, yeah, yeah a good call. A See, good folks, call. benefits of coming up with the topics is that you get to snake your co-pilot <laughs> every single time. Remember that. But, yeah, a bit of a, uh, an interesting tale of... Um, your career peak coming very, very early. Yep. Um, kind of a uh, greatest film of all time, generally recognized as... Uh, oh, uh, Citizen Kane. Yes. Yeah. Generally yeah. generally considered the best... Orson Welles. Orson Welles. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's difficult when you peak that early in your career. It I mean, is. Gary Busey yeah. was, what, 24, 25 when they did his film? Yeah. But it was an all-consuming role. He nailed it. It was an amazing, mm. amazing film. And yeah, without a doubt, if you hadn't grabbed it, I definitely would have called that my number one. Right. But uh, seeing as how you took that out from under me, <laughs> uh, my number one is going to be the 1986 film Sid and Nancy. There you go. And primarily because just Gary Oldman was just beyond good, mm -hmm. completely off the hook as Sid Vicious. And in a role that I thought was underappreciated, Chloe Webb as Nancy Spungen. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and all the you know, books I've read about that era and all the bands in that era, everybody describes Nancy Spungen pretty consistently, and Chloe Webb nailed it. She just absolutely nailed it to a T. And again, not a particularly great film. They were fast and loose with the facts. Mm -hmm. Not sure they properly encapsulated the impact that the Sex Pistols had on society at that time. Right. But yeah, Gary Oldman, typical Gary Oldman, mm -hmm. completely off the hook, completely nailed it. Uh, Chloe Webb, you know, the chemistry between the two is amazing, right. absolutely amazing. And that's what really made that film significant. Forget mm -hmm. the facts, focus on the actors, focus on their performances. And yeah, you have an amazing film. Right. Now, good, good choices, one and all. And, and you had um, used an asterisk earlier. Um, I'll come at the tail end of it and say, you know, my honorable mention um, would have been um, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. The reason I didn't go with that is because, and I could be completely off on this one, but as I was watching it, it didn't feel to me that the timeline matched up right. with, with reality. There were some things that seemed disjointed, oh, but yeah. I, I'm not a Queen scholar, so it could have been just my imagination, Yeah, but it just seemed like a lot of the stuff they juxtaposed around almost like in a Tarantino movie because it fit a new timeline which made more sense yeah. in the events you know, of the band. In, in all honesty, I... Shit can that one from my list for the very same reasons. Um, because of the time I worked in radio, I'm very, very uh, 
familiar with Queen mm -hmm. and their timeline and whatnot, and some of the liberties they took in doing that film, in my mind, were just a bit too much. Right, right. You know, and just not. But not that cool. being said, the, 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 performances the performances and whatnot were, incredible. were outstanding. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, overall, like a real just nice piece of work if you want to watch a, a good oh, yeah. movie. And they absolutely nailed Queen's performance at Live Aid. They totally. really did hit on the significance of it mm -hmm. and the impact of it. But yeah, some of the shit they did before that was a little unforgivable yeah. as far as I and was concerned. You know, there, there's a lot of you know, if you're talking about rock and roll and making a movie about it, there's a lot to be said for style points. Yeah. And to use a bad example, um, remember that movie Streets of Fire? Yeah. And the subtitle, A Rock and Roll Fable. Uh, okay. Yeah. And they had some, some musical groups in that. And um, the movie itself sucks. Okay. <laughs> it was, it was uh, an early. Um, Acting turn by uh, William Defoe. Right. I think it was the movie he did right after To Live and Die in L.A. Okay, so he was still new to the whole thing, Very and he was new. like in charge yeah. of a biker gang. Yeah, Michael Pere, who was like one of those '80s action stars that just disappeared. You know, I think yeah. after this he did Eddie and the Cruisers and then Ooh. disappeared. Yeah, but again, horrible movie, but good soundtrack and. It was very, very stylized, yeah. you know, and the whole thing to me was a a breathing presentation of that um, that famous like I call it hacky art um, <laughs> of the diner when you got James Dean sitting there with Marilyn yep. Monroe and the whole thing. Yep. Oh, the yeah. whole thing was like that brought to life, kind of. Yeah, uh, Rick Moranis played like this horrible singer's manager, and yep. it, it, it was yep. just it was so bad in so many ways. But because of the style it was imbued with, mm -hmm. it kind of worked. Sure. You know? And I would say the same thing for the, uh, the Jimi Hendrix biopic yeah. that Andre 3000 did. You know, not a great start-to-finish biopic of, of, you know, Jimi Hendrix, yeah. but style-wise, it, it just worked, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, a lot of times they'll make up for the fast and loose mm -hmm. uh, interpretation of the facts with that kind of thing, and it will cover for it. But right. again, if you're a fan... And you know the true history. That's like people who love the book, and then the book gets turned into a movie. Yeah. And there's always some asshole there. <laughs> this isn't nearly as good as the book. Durr. Somebody had to say it, right? Right. This is a, they missed a lot from the trend. Shut up. <laughs> the book is 400 pages. What do you want to do? We got two hours to work with here. Exactly. That's the reality of the thing. And yeah, anytime you know you want to take on a rock bio, that's the hurdle you're facing. Right. And, right. Uh, and you know. I do respect the fact that that is a hurdle. Mm -hmm. I still don't forgive Oliver Stone for the Doors movie. But As you've mentioned many times. Yeah, yeah. Trust me, folks, it really is one of his largest bugaboos. <laughs> Several times he's brought this up in a stupor. Kind of goddamn Oliver Stone. Please <laughs> hang something about him. Yeah, just don't, don't ever let me and, me and Oliver be in the same room alone Platoon together. Platoon my ass. Yeah. So that being said, um, <laughs> we have for the third gem yet another Elvis tune, yes. which we were in uh, total lockstep with on this one because it will, well, it'll make sense as we go into the uh, Dunomont segment. Absolutely. Because it's got an extra special meaning as of yesterday. So, yeah. Michael, what's the third Elvis gem you know, going to be? Of, one of the rare occasions where Johnny Teflon and I are on the same page. Happy to say that. Yep. Uh, this would be. The 1963 Elvis single, Devil in Disguise. Yes, indeed. One of mine, as well as yours, favorites. Yep. And we're going to spin this for you, and we'll be right back in a few with some more things and stuff and a wrap-up. Stay tuned. You look like an angel. Look like an angel. Walk like an angel. 
talk like an angel, but I got wise. You're the devil in disguise. Oh, yes, you are, devil in disguise. Part of that song mm-hmm. that's probably the the thing that I love most about that song and what really stands out to me as far as like Elvis tunes mm-hmm. and you know the time period that it was from uh, it was released as a single in 1963 and uh, it's funny and this is a whole nother topic but it was also released in a 1968 compilation Elvis Gold Records Volume 4 1968 he was already creating Volume 4 right it's like by 72 it was like Volume 73 Mm -hmm. Uh, you know no other artist has as many volumes of whatever as Elvis did volumes Elvis Gospel Volume 27 you know that is a definite area where Elvis set precedents that no one has lived up to since Mm. you know but yeah, it was vintage 1963. It right. really was. And yeah, and like I said, it was definitely, you know, for both of us, one of our favorites. Yep. For me, I just love the, the, the pure singability of it. Yeah. Like so many trademark good Elvis tunes. Oh, yeah. And how could you not sing along to it when you hear it? Right. You know, it just right. it, it hits you like that, you know? <laughs> you got to do that doo-wop thing, you know, that walk like an angel. Yep. You yep. know? So, yeah. Vintage, vintage Elvis. Good stuff. That was Good that. stuff. And it's, uh, you know, it's timely that we're doing this topic at this time. Yes. Because un- unfortunately, two days ago, uh, one of our uh, admired actors between the two of us, James yep. Kahn, passed away. Indeed. And I was saying to you, you know, one of his performances that I always enjoyed was his very sublime comedic approach to the uh, gambling um, gangster character he played in Honeymoon in Vegas. I don't know what to do. You brought me to Las Vegas and you turned me into a whore, Jack. Shh. 
Cats with yep. Nicolas Cage. Yep. And one of the underlying themes of that movie was not only constant visions of, of Elvis all yep. over the place, yep. Yep. up to and including the skydiving flying Elvises, but <laughs> in almost every scene, there is Name a, any artist who right? had like this skydiving whatever you are. Utah chapter. Exactly. But it's, you know, through so many scenes in the movie, they're playing Devil in Disguise yeah. out of all the other yeah. songs that they could have did, you know. And it's because of the character that James Caan was playing. Yeah. And not coincidentally, how many times has Nicolas Cage brought Elvis into <sighs> roles lot. that he was playing? A lot. What's the know? one with the, they, they the casino heist? It's got him and Christian Slater in it. And mm. I think Kurt Russell might be in that one, too. But they yeah, all no play doubt. Elvis yeah. impersonators. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. The thing, the one that I always remember is Wild at Heart. Mm-hmm. You know, where he plays this like eccentric rocker dude, right? And it's the most bizarre movie you will ever see. I think it was David, Lynch. <laughs> and he's been in a few. Oh yeah, <laughs> but he's bringing the Elvis, yep. you know, as much as Nick Cage can, uh-huh. you know. And yeah, obviously he is somebody who, you know, reveres the king, understands and appreciates the you know gravitas mm-hmm. of that, and he brings it in films. And for him, it works, right? You know, I don't know if anybody else could do it, but and uh, you know, another funny James Con anecdote that I came across just yeah. doing a little reading on him was the uh, the famous scene from The Godfather, the opening scene when you first meet him, yeah, and it's that uh, God damn FBI, I don't respect nothing. Oh, the FBI? The Connie's... Um, oh, yeah, they're taking right. license plates outside the wedding. Yeah, yeah and then yeah. there's a guy taking pictures, and he, in a famous, famous scene, you know, rips the camera out of the guy's hand, throws it on the ground, and the look of terror on, on this photographer's face, you yep. think it's part of the act. And then but, he throws some money at him. Right, just right. Like, Here you go, pal. Yeah. And the entire thing was ad-libbed. Yep. So the look yep. of terror on the guy playing the cameraman was genuine, because he was like, what the hell is this guy doing? This isn't in a script. Yeah. The prop master was pissed off at James Conn because it was a <laughs> priceless vintage 40s camera that they were using. Yep, yep. And him throwing the money at the guy was, he said, because, well, where I grow up, you break something, you, you buy it. Right, you know? right. And see, it's very easy to get into characters. And James Conn. I know, to do Jimmy Conn, yeah, no doubt. Santino, what do you think? I don't know, there's a lot of money in this white powder. Yeah. He was a very <laughs> underrated very. actor in regards to method. Yes. You know, he was bringing... You know, very interesting approaches to every uh, role he played, and mm-hmm. it was so subtle that I don't think people appreciated it. Yeah. You know, and unfortunately, he had to fight the stereotype of the Sonny Corleone thing for the rest of his the career. Yeah. yeah, you know, but he couldn't. He was one of those actors where it just he kind of vibed that like yes. impending. I'm about to break your yeah. You know, he, he was a, a visceral guy. Yeah. That's how he came across. Uh, and that was a stock and trade. So yeah. he could play, even if they were more of the silent strong type, like Jonathan and, and uh, Rollerball. Rollerball yeah. Just menacing, tough, larger-than-life figures. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll be missed. He'll be yeah. missed. He'll he played a lot of iconic characters. He'll be missed. His, uh, his son, Scott Kahn, mm-hmm. very much carries that characteristic. Although he's only like four foot eleven. <laughs> yeah. I think his hair is like a foot of that on top Entirely of that. Entirely possible. But yeah, and a lot of the, like, the younger folks, they, they enjoyed James Conn because he was the dad in Elf. Yeah. You know, again, yeah. the guy had comedy chops. He had timing. Yeah, which kills me because, yeah, for our generation, he was Sonny in The Godfather. He was Jonathan in Rollerball. Yep. And he was what, I forget the dude's name, but in Thief. Thief, yeah. Michael Mann's first film. Mm-hmm. And just arguably his best film. 
You know, there's so many nuances to that character that he plays. It's just, it's so impressive. Mm -hmm. If you understand just the subtleties that he brings to that role of that character, that character he plays in Thief is unredeemable, but yet somehow he makes you sympathetic to him. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was the mastery of James Caan and what he brought to any any given role. You know, so... Yes, he will be missed. Yep. Rest in peace, Jimmy Kahn. Godspeed. And that's going to about do it for this episode of Riffs and Rants. Uh, and again, folks, don't be disheartened because uh, we're not going to be on every week now, probably until the fall. But we'll be doing shows here and there as things happen because we know sometimes you depend upon us to make this crazy world make sense. Yeah. Or if nothing else, get a good laugh out of it. Right. And we're yeah. looking at you, fans of Brittany Griner. <laughs> Trust oh, me, no. that, that show is coming. That was unscripted. Yeah. <laughs> so on that note, thanks again for joining us. As always, I'm Johnny Teflon. And I'm Michael Shonley. And we'll see you all on the flip side.